0: Want access to richer content and exclusive analysis on the business of sport? Sports Pro Plus is used by experts across the industry to make informed decisions, with two membership tiers offering access to original content, exclusive reports, and a suite of business intelligence tools. Become a member today at sportspromedia.com forward slash subscribe, and use the code FCPOD10. That's FCPOD10 at checkout for a 10% discount. Football Co. Business Podcast, the most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football. Hello and welcome to Football Co. Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Manby, and on this show, our guest is Sean Mann, founder and co-owner of USL Championship club Detroit City FC. The club started life when it was founded by five local residents in 2012, formed out of a community beer league in the city. Fast forward a decade and Le Rouge, as they're nicknamed, was making its debut in the USL Championship. Today, Detroit City and its supporters are arguably known as much for their anti-establishment viewpoints as they are for their football. This has included it being the first US professional sports club to wear a shirt supporting LGBTQ rights. Today, Sean and I are going to discuss the origins of the club and explore the importance of using one's platform to be a force for good. And of course, I'm going to ask him about Lionel Messi, because everybody knows Messi equals clicks, and that's what digital media is all about. Sean, welcome to the show thanks for having me on so can you tell us a little bit about the backstory of detroit city fc and how the club came to exist
1: yeah i uh you know like a lot of people my generation in america uh, did not come from a soccer family uh, but grew up in a time period uh, where in the 90s where we started having satellite tv or cable tv and started having access to champions league matches and premier league and you know certainly piqued the curiosity and awareness of the sport and so I had the good fortune of going um, overseas for school, uh, spent a year in Greece, and then I got my master's in Bristol and spent a year, some time in London on top of that. And, uh, you know, through that experience, uh, you know, what I'd been watching on satellite TV and whatnot as a kid, I got to experience firsthand. And, uh, you know, I really fell in love with the the culture uh, around the game, uh, around the world uh, and the passion and the community. So uh, my background is politics. I came home. Uh, all the idealistic, got involved in local government here in uh, Detroit, uh, help, wanting to help turn the city around. Dad's kind of tilting at windmills, to say the least. Uh, so as an outlet for frustration and want to have a positive impact on the city, I created a neighborhood-based, very, very recreational co-ed, as you mentioned, Beer League. And with the idea that it was neighborhood versus neighborhood. Uh, and so it wasn't friends coming together. It was you going out and knocking doors and getting to uh, recruit neighbors to field teams. And um, that that 2010 was the first year it launched. We had 11 neighborhoods and 300 people participate. But I think more importantly, we had twice as many people coming out and supporting neighbors and drinking. And, you know, it was a time period in the city where we were heading into bankruptcy. Uh, There was a lot of abandonment uh, happening, uh, but there was a a swell of young people uh, coming in. Who uh, were making investments in the city, and it was kind of a gathering spot for a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. And uh, that league took off; it's still going now, it's heading into its fifteenth season, uh, with thirty-plus neighborhoods and over a thousand people regularly participating in it. But it was through that league that a group of us got together and we over beers were, you know, talking about, you know, how our other friends were starting small businesses and having an impact on the city, and recognizing, you know, how soccer brought people together and, and how Detroit didn't have a team. And so, uh, you know, kind of with the same kind of bootstrap mentality a lot of our friends had in terms of opening up small business in the city, um, you know, we, we banded together. We each put in, five of us each put in 2,000 bucks, which was enough to buy uh, a set of goals. uh had a high school in downtown Detroit, uh, a lot more off Craigslist and uh, some training gear. And uh, that really got the whole thing going back in 2012.
0: Do you think there was something about soccer that made it right? Was it just as simple as, you know, an interest that you and your friends had in it, or was there something kind of quintessential about the sport of soccer that meant it was the right opportunity, the right sport?
1: Yeah, I think there's a element of tribalism to it. Uh, that is why it appealed to me in the very beginning, uh, when it was the neighborhood, uh, league, and also just the sheer accessibility of it. Right. Especially when we're coming up from perspective of, uh, a very recreational five side type league, right? Um, but yeah, that sense of community I think from day one has always been what is the appeal to me. And yeah, you know, to this day, you know, we're in the process of hiring a new manager. And uh, to this day, the X's and O's of the game still elude me. You know, uh, I every applicant comes in and talks about you know bringing an attractive attacking style of football, and I just nod my head. But you know, for me, it's the you know, uh, do they respect, like, the community that's grown up around this club and, you know, or they help grow that? And so uh, that's still my focus and why it has always been the appeal of soccer. Can you give just a little bit of context about the community there and
0: uh, maybe about the city of Detroit for some listeners who aren't aware about the history and the role that it plays in U.S. society?
1: Yeah, I, it's similar to a lot of your northern Rust Belt cities. Um, I think what sets Detroit apart is that um, – the wild swings that it has enjoyed or suffered uh, over the generations, you know, from the bill of the automobile industry to the downward swing of um, white flight and the moving out of the industrial core of uh, the city, uh, the abandonment. Um, and now you're seeing a, a wave of new investment, uh, which has its pros and cons as well. But I think what really you know, makes Detroit special is that it's it's an iconic city. Uh, it's a city that like has had an impact in the world. Uh, I think living in Europe is one of the things that like impressed on me was that um, it's a brand in the sense that uh, when you mention Detroit, whatever their worldview is, like Detroit conjures up something, right? Like it could be Motown, it could be techno, it could be auto, it could be urban farms, it could be you know the automobile itself, it could be you know the uh, deindustrialization of you know cities. It means something and you know, like conjures up images, and so. I think that's always been something special, uh, and we've benefited from that. There's been years where we've gotten ran up more times and publications in Europe than we did in the daily papers in Detroit, right? Because the Detroit brand, but um, yeah, it's a it's a truly kind of blue collar city. It's a major region. Uh, it's still 12th largest region in the U.S. There's close to five million people that live here. You know, but a lot of those folks who live in the city have moved out and are still continue to move out, but there is, um, you know, uh, a community that's rallied around this club. I think, you know, what we've always tried to orient ourselves is being as authentic as possible. Uh, me and the guys who started the club are still the ones running it. Uh, you know, we still see our friends and supporters at school pickup and at the grocery store. And, you know, um, and, you know, so we've always tried to orient this club to be as a reflection of, you know, the city that we know and love. So we
0: had the community Bay league, the, Detroit City FC is born out of that. Everything grows. It, you know, you can sort of see the sense of momentum. But then the thing that really called my attention or caught my attention when I was doing the research was this Detroit City becoming the first team in US sport to wear a jersey backing LGBTQ rights. You know, it's still quite a humble story as you're telling it. And yet that's a momentous thing to do, to be the first to do. What was the story behind that?
1: Yeah. Your you know, our supporters early on had approached us about doing a charity kit. And uh, they at the time were working on a charity kit for veterans. Um and that was in our second year, twenty thirteen. And so the next year comes around and uh you know, me and the other guys who had started the club were talking and you know, I think our focus has always been on this community. Like we're uh, think on bigger global issues, but we wanna like harness it on how it impacts Detroit. Uh, at the time, um you know, gay marriage was not recognized in, the, in our state, which is hard to imagine now, uh, how much things have progressed. You know, we, um, we thought we'd use our platform to advocate for something that meant something to us uh, and that's something to the people in our community. Uh, and so, um, you know, that was the nexus for using our platform, right? And we wanted to use it for positive. So uh, we started what is now a tradition of an you know, annual charity partner where we wear a charity kit each season and then we auctioned it off. Um, the magical thing about that first year, 2014, when we did the LGBTQ uh, equality kit, uh, we did it for a homeless shelter for LGBTQ youth here in Detroit, Ruth Ellis Center. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing about that was our supporters not only participated that year, but then they brought, breathed a whole new life into it and took it to the levels we never could have imagined. And so, yeah, it's really kind of a core feature of our club now that every June, you um, our supporters do this campaign called Pride Raiser, uh, where they donate money based on the number of goals we score uh, over the course of the year, um, which is just a kind of fun way. I mean, they donate regardless of how well we do. But um, we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars now over the last uh, eight or nine years for this homeless shelter, and uh, you know, been one of their biggest advocates. And on top of that, like our supporters and other supporters around the country have now grown this across this country, uh, Pride Raiser. Uh, but we're still like the leaders in it, and. That's something we look to build on every year. And, you know, 10 years later, like, you know, I not only were those kind of values we expressed at the time, but like now, you know, I think we've seen quite a few, few members of the community, particularly the trans community in recent years, um, start participating and being active members of our supporter culture um, that um, has grown up over time. And so, yeah, that means a lot to us um, over the years.
0: You mentioned a number of other causes there. You said it's not always the same cause every year. Can you give a few examples of those? And also, how do you choose them?
1: Uh, Originally, it was me and uh, the other founders, you know, would select them. And then in twenty one twenty twenty 2020, during COVID, we sold off 10% of the club to uh, fans. And so now that's something that we have the fans vote on every year, uh, which nonprofit we want to support that year. Some have been pretty esoteric. I would say they've all been uh, you know, left leaning and, you know, progressive and Detroit focused. Uh this one this year is called Brilliant Detroit and it's uh amazing program that has thirty some they've taken over thirty some of vacant homes in the city and turned them into resource centers for families. Uh, and after school reading and literacy programs are our key focus, but um it's really tied on the neighborhood. But yeah, you know, we try to highlight, I think, nonprofits and causes that probably don't get the attention they're do and uh, and try to give them a bigger platform that they enjoy
0: this is clearly philosophically fundamentally a big part of who you are as a club to what extent do you consider yourselves a football club versus a vehicle for social change it's
1: um yeah it's a great question like I think we they kind of go hand in hand um, and I think that puts pressure on us I think people look to us weigh in on all types of things um, and you know I, I think we've tried to like focus as much as possible on Detroit. For Detroit issues that we see them. But yeah, ultimately, you know, the the whole point of the endeavor was to bring people together. Right. Um, and I think once we decide, once we recognize that we had a platform, you know, it was how do we harness that for making positive change in our community? Uh, but we also recognize that like, you know, that it's football that brings us together. And also we recognize that uh putting out a winning product helps bring more attention to the club and brings more people into the stands and so yeah, i don't think you can detach them they all go hand in hand
0: is there a world in which they might clash i mean let's say hypothetically you realized that an element of your activism was harming your ability to compete on the pitch would you rein it in would you double down
1: i think we've run into a few occasions um you know where i think you know, where we've had to walk a fine line, um, you know, with certain supporters and their causes and, um, you know, uh, how it might be perceived in the locker room. And, you know, I think we've always been able to, like, navigate that where they, we've gotten to a point where players recognize the uniform's a uniform and, you know, they you know, respect that. They respect the community around the club. And I think, again, it's harnessing, you know, what is the advocacy of the club versus, you know, supporters? I think uh, as much as possible, like we've treated this as the club as a platform. Uh, And, you know, the, as we always try to use is that, you know, we're the host of the party, not the life of the party. Uh, And so, you know, as much as we're permitted by the broadcast standards and whatnot, like, you know, we, um, you know, have treated the, you know, as much of a free speech first amendment as like what supporters can do and, you know, in the supporter section. Uh, and yeah, I don't think that's yet been a deterrent. We've had issues where, like, you know, certainly supporters have pushed back on a sponsor uh, or two, and, you know, we've had to reassess relationships because of that. Um, but it's all stuff that's navigated. We've always, you know, navigated, and I think, you know, hopefully come out stronger as a result of it.
0: I'm keen to talk about brand partners, but, but first I just want to touch on uh, what you were saying about the players there. I think typically players... And with some good reason, you know, football players around the world think that their job is to be a football player and they tend to avoid societal you know, issues. That's not always true. And there are some notable exceptions. But is it any different at Detroit City? Is there an expectation that because fans own 10 percent of the club and because the club is recognized for standing up for certain issues, that when you sign on for Detroit City, you are going to be representing that side of things, too?
1: Yeah, I mean, now that we've been, it was a different story in 2014. Uh, But now, you know, 10 years later, uh, I think we're pretty well established as to who we are. And it's not to say that like every player is going to have the same worldview um, as all of our supporters because, you know, are the club, because frankly, that would be impossible to ask that, you know. But I think we're at a point where the players respect, you know, where the club's at and, you know, the values around this club that drive us and, so I think we've successfully to date navigated those issues, but we're certainly well aware of like, you know, in American sports generally there is kind of a, been a push back. you see with the NHL, NHL uh, and the LGBTQ uh, efforts that they've been pulling back on, you know? So I, I think we're cognizant of that. And I think, you know, it's not going to change our values and, you know, we'll keep pressing forward, but yeah, you know, to date. Um, yeah. I don't think you expect players to have all the same world views as the team, but again, you know, it's the uniform state of form that, you know, they, it's part of the conformity of being a part of the team.
0: Okay. And it's interesting, you were touching on the brand partners earlier, and you were talking about how a potential brand partner might receive pushback from your fans. But I'm keen to go even before that, as the commercial team goes out and starts talking to p- possible sponsors, do you find that they are drawn to the Cause-driven ethos of Detroit City, or deterred by what what sort of might seem controversial to certain people, especially in such polarized, divided times.
1: Sure, and uh, you know, corporate partners generally are risk adverse right? Um, but I think we've gotten to, and we're developing, you know, a sweet spot of partners who recognize who we are, what we're doing, and they want to be a part of it and support it, and. And also, they recognize that it doesn't make sense to invest their limited marketing dollars in a club if they feel like they're going to get pushed back for it, right? Yeah, uh, you know, we're not of a size and a clout that like people are going to take that risk, right? Uh, but we've developed like really great partners, um, Ally Bank, uh, who's based here in Detroit, but uh, one of the main sponsors of women's soccer in America, and you know just a major player. They're one of our main partners, and. You know they saw what the pride raiser campaign is, and they you know match what the supporters raise, and they've helped you know exponentially grow uh, the donations to the homeless shelter here. Uh, and I think that's a very kind of organic uh, way that you know our corporate partners have been helping you know us live our values. And I think those are the type of relationships that we are increasingly trying to cultivate. Are
0: there any sporting organizations there out there which? Inspire you, which you take inspiration from, and think of doing things the way that you want to do things, and that might be in the US, it might be in soccer. One name that I know you have a certain relationship with is St. Pauli, so you know I throw that out there as well.
1: Yeah, and I I love St. Pauli. I love the the leadership there. um You know, uh, everyone. Yeah, you can't replicate. Uh, everyone's in a slightly different position, but. Um, yeah. It was a huge honor that we hosted St. Paul for their first ever game, uh, in America. And, you know, I'm still in touch with the leadership there at the club and yeah. You know, uh, and yeah, like I have a huge amount of respect for who they are and their values and what they stand for. There's similar areas, but Detroit's not, you know, Hamburg. Um, and I, obviously they're very active in political cause and I think like that I think, um, and we haven't shied away from those either. Um, I think ultimately, like I go back to our, my own personal experience, but, um, uh, you know, being in the UK and, um, I've just drawn to intimacy and authenticity, uh, especially the lower division clubs and, you know, really trying to build something here that is relevant to people from generation to generation. Right. And that, you know, they have a special bond and tie to, um, and that it's, you know, reflective of them and community. And so, Yeah, I I follow a lot of lower division clubs in England, and I'm always taking uh, note as to how they've built those multi-generational ties. Um, But yeah, certainly on a social front, uh, political front, Tate Pauly's always been uh, a guiding star for us on a lot of clubs on this side of the Atlantic.
0: So talking about that fan experience, what does match day look like at Detroit City? If I come down for a game, what could I expect?
1: So we play in a shitty 1930s stadium. Um, I'm a romantic. uh, I love it. Um, You know, it's concrete, you know, wood bleachers. uh, There's no frills to it. The only corporate hospitality is uh, uh, a row of shipping containers we built and put behind one of the goals. The supporter section uh, has and will always be front and center uh, right there at midfield. Uh, So we're the only team in North America that has the supporter section right at midfield, right in broadcast view. And, you know, they really at the tone of the stadium. Uh, And they're going to be standing and chanting for the whole 90 minutes. And, you know, there's the smoke at the beginning of the game. And hopefully there's a lot of smoke throughout the game whenever we score. And, uh, you know, (laughs) it is the narrowest pitch allowed by American soccer. The touchline is uh, eight feet off of brick walls on each side. Uh, And uh, and then right there, you've got our supporters leaning over the fence, uh, whispering sweet nothings. And so the opposing players every time they do a throw-in. Um, but it's very English in that like it, the, this old you know 7,200-seat stadium is tucked into the middle of the densest community, uh, one of the communities in the Midwest. There's over 26,000 people within a walking distance of the stadium. Uh, we only have 100 parking spots, which is crazy for the Motor City. Uh, and so it's an authentic, you know, everyone's building these sports entertainment districts. Like, this is authentic. There's 20 so dive bars and restaurants that are still hundred year old working class places where you still get a $2 beer, uh, where you go before and after and you funnel and you walk through a neighborhood and, you know, it's very lower division in that you don't know where you're weaving through the neighborhood except for the, the floodlights hovering over the neighborhood. So, um, and yeah, if you're in the top row of the stadium, you can literally lean over and almost touch a half dozen houses that butt up to it. So, um, yeah it's a special place uh you know the bathrooms don't work and the pitch uh floods too easily uh but it's it's something unique and uh and and our league just announced that we have a broadcast deal starting next year uh, for the next four years with cbs and uh you know we should be one of the featured clubs in this yeah you know, uh new arrangement because it is a uh, such a unique uh destination we have the main rail yard in Detroit is right behind, you know, the other grandstand. That's not next to the houses, and so you have trains going by the entire game, honking the horn, everything. Um, so it's uh, it's memorable, and I think that's part of you know our mission is to create something that's memorable for folks.
0: The way you're talking about it just feels to me, and I may be dealing with stereotypes here, like the antithesis of the U.S. sporting venue, you know, and it it feels very U.K. You know, I, I grew up going to all sorts of football stadiums around the UK and, and my favorite were always the ones that you'd go around the corner and there was the stadium and you're 20 yards away from it and you'd just been walking down a row of terraced houses and all of a sudden it was there and it had been squeezed into the smallest space possible a hundred years earlier and there was no way anyone was going to get rid of it now, even though I'm sure housing developers would want to do that. And like I say, I feel like US sporting venues in my mind tend to be these kind of great giant venues with shopping malls and 24-7 entertainment and, um, you know, revenue streams coming in the hallway. So that's very uh, sort of rose-tinted spectacles of me, but uh, that's the image I'm getting.
1: Yeah, no, I'm a uh, romantic and I love Keyworth, uh, and, uh, but, you know, we, we openly say it's not our forever home and that, uh, you know, it has a lot of limitations and, um, you know, also, operating uh a 90 year old venue uh has a whole host of headaches but no it's uh, incredibly special I mean I i not this you know I wouldn't say I discovered it like my personal experience of finding it was um you know I get my hair cut in a house like three blocks away I've been doing it for years and it was just one day I was on the front porch and I was just like you know what are those light towers how where could those possibly go to you know and I wander through the neighborhood and there was you know this stadium which at the time um you know it was slated for being demoed uh they only let just like the first couple rows and the concrete was deteriorating so they had chain link fence blocking the rest of it um and uh you know uh the, the amazing community around this club after a few years at our original venue we outgrew it we raised uh, the funds to save the stadium bring new life to it and, and now it's a you know, it's a true community hub. Uh, it's the only stadium in American professional soccer that's open to the public. So as soon as we are done with the game, there are 40 kids from the neighborhood from around playing on the pitch. Wow, that's spectacular.
0: Sean, I'm going to segue. I don't know how uh, naturally or neatly this is, but I'm going to segue into Messi, if I may. Um, you know, we can't talk about Soccer in the US without talking about Messi right now and and the numbers are are stark and incredible and, you know, into Miami, uh, I believe another sporting franchise uh, outside of the NBA with most social media followers, And you know, there's all sorts of these, you know, unrecognizable things um, for the world of soccer, at least until recently unrecognizable. How have you found his coming to the MLS and has the, the Messi effect trickled down to the USL and to Detroit City?
1: Uh, I mean, the, the messy effect impacted us because when they announced uh, that he was signing with Inter Miami, uh, we at Miami FC in the second division, our division, we had a game with them later in the year, like four months later, and we saw a random like hundred tickets sold for that game like four months out, which doesn't happen, right? So, so that was uh the most immediate impact um
0: presumably these is by mistake right this is yes, spectators who yes, yes. think they're going to see Messi. okay right right did they yep. did they get refunds did they come to um, the game
1: <laughs> it's a good question i um i don't we don't issue have any refunds so um, <laughs> <laughs> but um no i i mean it created buzzworthy it created must watch moments uh not that i necessarily found time to watch it or you know it's very limited behind apple tv but um yeah, it definitely became like, you know, the nightly news across the country was talking about it. I used a lot of pressure to put on a 37-year-old's body, uh, you know, and you, you saw that we're in the course of the year. Um, but American soccer just doesn't have that many big cultural buzzworthy moments. And so it certainly had an impact. And the biggest thing is, like, I think uh, myself and a lot of people in American soccer are, are skeptical of the notion that is, what is good for MOS The entity is inherently good for the sport in this country. And so I think it helped him a lot. You know, while he's there, I think similar to the Beckham effect, it's a question of like, what's the long term impact? I would make the argument that I genuinely believe that uh, Ted Lasso and um, the Wrexham shows have probably had a bigger cultural impact. And certainly in terms of like educating Americans on the global nature of soccer right the the notion that like on nightly news they talk about those shows and the notion of pro pro rel has been brought up and now people understand that concept i never thought that would have happened like messi is a probably a bigger reiteration of the whole beckham effect but like the understanding that the layperson in america now has of global football is attributable to ISO and Wrexham, in my opinion uh, and that that's something I would have never uh, anticipated
0: it's an interesting concept. I mean I think this uh, th- thinking about pulling in the same direction, whether it's MLS or the clubs or USL or even these entertainment you know video s- series um, which you mentioned, I think that's a concept which is quite foreign to perhaps countries where football is more established you're sort of like well why would we need to pull in the same direction you know it's already all there. Um, so I think my final question, Sean, um, is about the World Cup. You know, if there is a sense of pulling in the same direction, then presumably 2026 is on people's minds and and lips. How present do you think it is in the public psyche of US sport? And I'm not just talking about soccer fans, but overall the US public. How um, how present do they have the World Cup in their minds? And and how an important in how important an event do you think it will be?
1: I mean, I remember in 94, uh, we had the World Cup here in Detroit at the Silver Dome, and I went to tune up with England-Germany, and people still talk about that. I think this will be massive, but the truth be told, like, it, it, I don't think it's caught on yet. I, like, I'm in a bubble, right? I'm, I'm in the soccer industry. So like, everybody here is orienting towards like the next three years ramping up to it and being a part of it, but I don't think the general public is thinking about it yet uh and we have some major tournaments coming here like copa america and everything like uh, every year there's basically a big tournament leading up to 26 um but i don't think everyone's there I, the one thing that's different is like uh, again everyone pulling together like outside toronto there's no mls stadiums being utilized for it and it's not like there's new venues being built it's all just nfl stadiums or we yeah, mexico being utilized so and it's not like there's like Olympics or anything like that cranes on the ground or anything like that. It's, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, we're an incredibly international country, 48 teams participating in that. Like, yeah. I mean, once it's here, it'll be massive. Um, I don't know what the long-term impacts of it are, but I know everybody is pitching that like the next three years you have to capitalize and take advantage of this moment. Um, but I don't, I, it's hard to say it's a coherent effort by American soccer because American soccer is not that unified. But I know every individual soccer entity is hitching that the next three years, this could be an amazing gross period.
0: Sean, sure, thank you very much for your viewpoint on that. Uh, on other things, it's been really refreshing hearing a sort of down-to-earth, um from-the-ground-up story. Uh And thank you very much for your time.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. So, where can listeners
0: find out more and follow or even join in the Detroit City journey if they've been inspired
1: by this? Uh, I mean, we're on all the social media platforms and uh, www.debtcityfc.com.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Sean. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. Until next time, all the best. The Football Co. Business Podcast The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football.